Hey, welcome back to the Inside Redemption podcast. My name is Luke Simmons. I'm one of the pastors that's part of the executive team of Redemption Arizona. And today we're bringing you another episode from the Inside Redemption Live event that we did on September 21st, 2021. That night was focused on the body, sex, and gender identity. And this lecture that we're going to bring you is from that night. It's from Josh Butler. Josh is one of the pastors at Redemption Tempe. He has a master's degree from Multnomah Seminary and has written a number of books, including The Skeletons in God's Closet and The Pursuit of God, and recently finished uh, writing a book related to gender and sexuality that is yet to be released. And so in this lecture that you're going to hear uh, right now, uh, Josh talked about what is gender? What is gender? What does it mean that our uh, biological sex expresses itself in different gendered ways? Um, so you could say, what is masculinity and femininity? I think this is a really helpful talk. And what you're going to see from Josh is that the Bible presents much more of kind of archetypes rather than stereotypes. And uh, I guess with that, we'll turn it over to him. Enjoy. Well, boys wear blue and girls wear pink, right? Well, not a century ago, I take this advice from Earnshaw Infants Department in 1918. There's been a great diversity of opinion on the subject, it reads, but the generally accepted rule is pink for the boys and blue for the girls. The reason is that pink, being a more decided and stronger color, is more suitable for the boy, while blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. So you gotta take those baby shower clothes back to Target, right? Boys wear pink, girls wear blue, it turns out. Now, examples like these are often used today to say that gender is simply a social construct. Certainly, there's some truth to this. Uh, social expectations vary across cultures for men and women. Uh, it's between like an Islamic society versus a Western one, for example, or in Vietnam versus Venezuela. As Seth pointed out to me recently, uh, one of our heroes growing up was a man who wore a dress and put makeup on and loved to have his hair in braids, and his name was William Wallace from Braveheart, right? And no one would accuse him of not being masculine. So, but is it social construction all the way down? That's what I wanna to ask tonight. Uh, I wanna give us a biblical framework for masculinity and femininity. Seth spoke just now to sex, like what are male and female, and as he said, sex is binary, it has to do with our bodies, and our bodies are sacred, and I want to speak to gender and the question of what are masculinity and femininity, a category which is admittedly a bit more malleable. My thesis is this, that the Bible resists gender stereotypes and affirms gender archetypes. It affirms gender archetypes, that some things are more generally true of men than of women, and of women than of men, uh, and it would be naive to ignore this, and it's, there's wisdom in recognizing these things. Uh, yet the Bible also resists gender stereotypes. It doesn't turn these into a rigid straitjacket that everybody needs to fit into. There is a lot of flexibility. This means that you don't need to meet a stereotype of masculinity or femininity in order to be a real man or a real woman. So let's start in Genesis 1. That is a good place to start where the Bible starts. And what we find in the Genesis 1 is that Genesis 1 has a form and fill structure, a form and fill structure. So this is how God creates the world. Before God starts creating, we're told in verse 2 that the earth was unformed and unfilled. Many translations use formless and void. Uh, so the word unformed, or tohu in Hebrew, it speaks to confusion and chaos, it's like my kid's jumbled Legos bucket where all the pieces are jumbled together with all the elements jumbled together. The word unfilled, on the other hand, or bohu in Hebrew, it means empty or void. 
like your bank account after that spending spree in Vegas, right? That <laughs> gambling trip. And now, this is the pre-creation state. It's unformed and unfilled. So how does God deal with this unformed and unfilled state? He first forms it and then fills it. So on the first three days, God forms creation by separating the elements from one another. On day one, he separates light from darkness. On day two, he separates the uh, sky from the waters above. And on day three, he separates the land from the sea. God deals with the unformed state of things by forming them. On the next three days, God continues his creative work, now filling these spaces that he has formed. With, uh, on day four, he fills the, the, the light and dark space from day one with the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day five, he fills the spaces from day two with fish and birds. And on day th- six, he fills the land with beasts and livestock and people. God turns spaces into places saturated with color and life. Now, days one to three parallel days four to six, like two panels of a diptych, if you've seen the form of art. Uh, on each fill day, God saturates the spaces that he separated on its corresponding form day. And God here is turning the chaos into a cosmos. Then at the climax of creation, God creates humanity, and he makes them male and female in his image. Man and woman are created in the image of God, verse 27 says. And the image of God is a big concept, but one of the ways that we image God, that man and woman image God, is they continue to form and fill creation. This can be seen in the two main tasks God gives them, uh, to rule and subdue the earth, or in other words, to form it, and to be fruitful and multiply, or in other words, to fill it. Ruling the creatures and subduing the earth. Let's start there. Uh, That has to do here with taming the wild and cultivating the land, with domesticating animals and protecting from predators. In other words, it's a forming task, to form the land to make it fruitful and abundant, to extend God's forming work from the garden out into the wasteland of creation. Now, second, fruitful and multiply. This is a filling task. It has to do with procreation, with filling the land that's been formed with other image bearers. Creation is not only to be cultivated, but inhabited saturated with other people who mediate God's presence into the earth. Now, uh, the man is more closely associated with the forming task and the woman with the filling task in Genesis 1 to 3. Uh, This shows up in a number of ways we don't have time to get into, but one illuminating example is in Genesis 3 with the impact of the curse on each of them. For the man, the curse involves the land. It will now produce thorns and thistles working against him rather than abundantly releasing its food and requiring his painful toil and the sweat of his brow. His forming work in relation to the land has been frustrated by the fall. For the woman, on the other hand, the curse impacts the womb, that she will now experience toil in conception, a Hebrew euphemism for infertility, as well as painful labor. In other words, both getting pregnant and giving birth have become difficult and painful. Her filling work, in other words, in relation to the womb, has been frustrated by the fall. The land and the womb share a correspondence here. Both are designed for fruitfulness and abundance. Both are impacted by the curse. Adam's forming task of cultivating the land and Eve's filling task of generating other image bearers have both been made difficult under the conditions of sin. So, Genesis associates men with the forming task and women with the filling task, but let's nuance this a bit, though, to keep it from turning into a stereotype, right? First, Genesis is not saying only men form and only women fill. Both commands, the command to rule and subdue, as well as the command to be fruitful and multiply, both commands are given to both of them in the plural, 
not one to him and the other to her. And this is obvious when it comes to procreation, right? It takes two to tango. Making babies is a team sport. As Seth said, you can't just do it with your mind, and also you can't just do it with one person. You need both men and women to be involved. Uh, yet women obviously bear a disproportionate impact when it comes to pregnancy and giving birth. And similarly, when it comes to farming, in the biblical story, both women and men work in the fields, that's fine, uh, yet men have been disproportionately impacted historically by the manual labor of farming. This would have been obvious through most of human history in agricultural societies when manual labor was much harder, impacting men in a different way, and families much larger, impacting women in a different way. Try running a family farm while raising a dozen kids in a 35-year lifespan. Right? In agricultural societies, men and women worked together, but their bodies were mutually conducive to different emphases in labor. Ancient audiences would have responded to the forming and filling associations with, no duh, right? A second nuance here. Genesis is not saying men go to work, women stay home. Agricultural societies did not share our sharp division between home and work today. In ancient Israel, the home was the workplace. Women helped in the fields and with livestock, while men contributed significantly to domestic duties and child rearing. For most of human history, the home has been a place of production, of industry, and livelihood for the entire family. It's anachronistic to project 1950s Leave It to Beaver America onto the Bible. Sometimes, I think there's a danger here that Christians can try to defend at times, we can try to defend quote-unquote traditional gender roles where uh, it's really not the tradition of the Bible so much as a particular period in American history. Genesis is being descriptive here, not prescriptive. It's describing the way things generally are, not prescribing the way they always need to be. Gender expectations are, in this regard, really flexible. Okay. So what's this mean for masculinity and femininity? Let me offer a definition here. Masculinity and femininity are archetypes, not stereotypes. They describe things that are generally true, not universally true. Masculine traits, for definition here, masculine traits are those associated with the forming task, and feminine traits are those associated with the filling task. This is a stable foundation, I would suggest, beneath many of the surface social fluctuations across history and in different societies. Cultures around the world tend to associate masculinity with themes like strength, protection, and provision, and femininity with themes like empathy, nurture, and gracefulness. Let's focus on strength and beauty for a moment. If you take uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Kim Kardashian, for example, as archetypes of masculinity and femininity, uh, we still look to them in our culture and on magazine shelves and whatever as icons of maleness and femaleness. And like The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, uh, strength is central to the archetype of masculinity. And this is true around the world, and it's easy to see how strength was historically connected to the forming function, an ability to cultivate the land, protect from wild animals and hostile neighbors. Beauty, meanwhile, is central to the archetype of femininity, and it's easy to see how this is connected to the filling function. Clear skin, the quote-unquote hourglass figure, and lustrous hair are all signs of fertility and good health. When it comes to attraction, women are still generally attracted to strength and men to beauty in this regard. The archetypes run deeper, however, than just our bodies. Femininity is often associated with characteristics like empathy and nurture, and it's easy to see how these are historically connected with the filling task of nursing and rearing young children. Masculinity, on the other hand, is often associated with courage and assertiveness, and it's easy to see how these are historically connected with the forming tasks of protection and provision. The form and fill tasks, they help explain the roots of masculinity and femininity. 
The archetypes are not arbitrary social constructions. They're connected to our image-bearing call to form and fill the earth. Even in the pink and blue example that I opened with, uh, while which color gets associated with boys and girls is flexible, yet notice why the 1918 article gave for its assessment. Pink was considered, quote, suitable for the boy because it was, quote, a more decided and stronger color. While blue was, quote, unquote, prettier for the girl because it was seen as more delicate and dainty. It's still strength and beauty driving the conversation. The cultural expression can vary across different cultures, uh, but what it's trying to express remains stable. Strength and beauty are iconic. Now, <clears throat> I'd suggest that we should think of masculinity and femininity as overlapping spheres, like a Venn diagram. Uh, the archetype does not mean that women shouldn't be strong or assertive or that men shouldn't be empathetic and nurturing. Rather, it simply means these attributes tend to come more naturally to the opposite sex. They aren't hard and fast rules. Something can be generally true without being universally true. It's generally true, for example, that men are taller and stronger than women, uh, yet some women are taller than me, and I'm pretty sure Jillian Michaels could kick Pee Wee Herman's tail. <laughs> so these are archetypes, not stereotypes. It's not saying all men need to be like this and all women need to be like this. It's saying, rather, that men tend to be more like this and women tend to be more like this. Part of the power of family, I'd suggest, is its ability to pull men and women towards each other's mutual strengths. As the 1800s Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bobbing put it, the family transforms ambition into service, miserliness into munificence, the weak into the strong, cowards into heroes, and here's the part to watch for, coarse fathers into mild lambs, tender-hearted mothers into ferocious lionesses. I love that image, coarse fathers into mild lambs, tender-hearted mothers into ferocious lionesses. Marriage can soften men and toughen women as they pull towards one another. And even in our singleness, rich Christ-centered relationships can help form us through our mutual strengths. All right, but we don't live in an agricultural society, Josh. <laughs> there is a revolutionary divide between us and that ancient world. I wanna look at two revolutions now. Uh, two revolutions that have radically impacted how we think about gender today. Uh, first is the Industrial Revolution. <clears throat> the rise of industrialization in the 18th and 19th centuries, it impacted gender, gender roles in a major way. Work and home were separated. Labor was no longer centered in and around the home as something men and women did together. Rather, it was relocated first to a factory and eventually to an office across town. Men went off to work while women raised the children at home. Now this general division of labor made sense. Manual labor was still much harder and masculine muscle was an occupational strength for the husband. Families were also still much larger in an era before baby bottles, preschool, and other innovations of the 21st century. So it was generally more practical for women to be home during the early years of child rearing. Yet something dramatically happened in this revolution. The forming and filling tasks were pulled apart. the overlapping spheres of the Venn diagram were detached and rigidly divided with a rigid barrier between them. Men went to work, women stayed home. Historically, before this, husband and wives were more interdependent. They needed each other to survive and thrive, working together to build a family and home. They needed their children to help them work the land and take care of them in old age. Now, however, the balance shifted, and significantly, the man's forming functions were rewarded with money by the emerging modern economy, while the woman's filling functions were not. This meant he could walk away and still financially support himself. 
She still had mouths to feed, including her own, that required he hold up his end of the bargain. While the power dynamics of marriage and society had always favored men, she now had less leverage and he had less incentive to remain faithful and true. And in the big picture, work and home were rigidly separated. Now, why is this important? Well, sometimes when Christians argue for, quote, traditional gender roles, quote, uh, what they're really arguing for is industrial revolution gender roles. Statements like women belong in the home or men should be the sole breadwinner assume a rigid division of labor that's foreign to the biblical imagination. Don't impose that dichotomy on the Bible. Historically, the home is a place where both bread is won and work is done. Imposing a stark separation between women's work and men's work is biblically unnecessary and practically unhelpful. A biblical vision assumes much greater interdependence between husband and wife and the mutual thriving of a family. There is great flexibility in how this can get worked out in different cultures and eras of history. Gender isn't everything, but it also isn't nothing. The form and fill functions or tasks do help explain why, in the wake of the Industrial Revolution, heavy manual labor was generally delegated to masculine strength while child-rearing uh, and child-rearing to feminine nurture. There's been another revolution, however, one more worth taking a look at, the technological revolution. In the 21st century, the technological revolution has dramatically impacted gender once more. The industrial age has given way to the information age, replacing production workers with mind workers, as the internet, mass media, and digital globalization have boomed. Manual labor is out, mind work is in. College students now aspire to be engineers at Facebook rather than foremen on an assembly line. Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics have exploded. Forming tasks no longer advantage masculine strength the way they once did. Filling tasks have also changed. We have smaller families and longer lifespans. The advent of things like baby formula, daycare, free public education have radically impacted traditional child-rearing tasks. All this has freed up mothers to more readily enter the workforce. Work and home have morphed once more. Now the spheres virtually map onto each other. You can work from home or remotely from anywhere in the world. Graphic designers can make a great living while globetrotting across the continents. The great wall dividing home and work is crumbling. You can cultivate the fields of creation right from your living room. If the industrial age originally separated work from home, the information age reunites them, but in a strange new way. They seem to overlap with no distinction. Do masculinity and femininity still have any meaning in this brave new world? Are form and fill still relevant? Yes, they are. Nature is stubborn. We see the persistence of form and fill in one of the major distinctions used by researchers who study sex differences, people versus things. People versus things. So on average, research has consistently found that women prefer working with people and men with things. This is seen in what is often been called the sexual paradox. The reality that countries which boast the greatest gender equality of opportunity, meaning where men and women have the freedom, encouragement, and support to go after what they want, uh, that these countries with the greatest gender equality of opportunity display the greatest gender disparity in what men and women actually choose. In Sweden, for example, around 75% of nurses are women and 75% of engineers are men. This is not because of oppression. Sweden boasts the longest paid maternity leave in the world, 16 months, alongside free daycare and free education all the way through university. Can we get some of that here? <laughs> Culturally, men share domestic duties and household work at a high level with women. It's hardly a patriarchal dictatorship. 
Preference, not coercion, drives the difference. Now, nursing is a classic people job, caring for patients. Uh, Other people jobs include things like teaching, social work, and counseling, and it's easy to see the connection in occupations like these to classically feminine attributes associated with filling tasks. Empathy, nurture, patience, listening, and care. Women vastly outnumber men in these fields, which tend to pay less, but offer more direct involvement in the care and well-being of people. Engineering, on the other hand, is a classic things job, designing systems. Other things jobs include things like physics, computer programming, and financial analysts. It's easy to see the connection to classically masculine attributes associated with forming tasks, creating structures, plotting logistics with high levels of mathematical acumen and spatial coordination. Men greatly outnumber women in these fields, which tend to pay more, much more, and offer greater involvement with abstract concepts and inanimate objects. Men tend to choose things, women to choose people. Even in common arenas like science, women tend to gravitate towards fields like biology or veterinary medicine, which work with living organisms, while men lean into fields like physics or computer science, which focus on abstract theory. The issue is not one of ability. Uh, Many women excel in things careers. Uh, If you're a female engineer or a Oh, I missed part there. Yeah, but if you're a female engineer or a male nurse, more power to you. Remember, archetype, not stereotype, right? So the issue is not one of ability, but of interest, what we tend to prefer. As psychologist Susan Pinker summarizes in her classic book on the subject, the more choice people have, the more we see sex differences in the workforce. More women are interested in working with people and living things. Uh, More men are interested in working with inanimate objects and physical processes. These preferences start at a young age. Boys like trucks, girls like dolls, you've heard. It's not an outdated stereotype. It's been found true across cultures around the world. Boys gravitate toward mechanical toys like Legos they can build and construct with, while girls reach for dolls they can talk to and engage with in socially imaginative play. Again, people versus things. This starts day one out of the womb. Girls look longer at faces and boys at mechanical objects. And it's true for baby monkeys as well. Boy monkeys prefer trucks, girl monkeys prefer dolls. All this confronts the myth that it's just socialization. There's a lot more that we could talk about if we had time. Girls are better at empathy and communication skills on average, while boys are better at spatial skills like 3D mental rotation. But the big picture here, form and fill are still around. Masculinity and femininity have immense explanatory power across a wide variety of cultures and history. All right, let's talk about a few takeaways. What does all this mean for us here? Big picture, the Bible affirms gender archetypes and resists gender stereotypes. Let's talk about some of the implications for each of these. First, the Bible affirms gender archetypes. This confronts some aspects in our culture today, right? This means that gender is not just a social construct. It's related to divinely given tasks to form and fill the earth, and these are image-bearing tasks. They're sacred. This confronts some of the gender ideology of today that sees gender as only a fluid social construct. While it's obviously true that history and culture shape how gender gets expressed in different societies, there is a stable foundation underneath. It's naive to ignore these general differences between men and women, and there's wisdom in recognizing them. As the church, we can affirm gender archetypes, recognizing that there are some general differences between men and women, and uh, yeah, there's wisdom in being aware of those. The other side, though, the Bible resists gender stereotypes. And at times, this can confront us as churches at times in the ways that we have handled this. Uh, There is a lot of flexibility. The gender is not a rigid straitjacket you have to fit into. As we put it in our membership packet, 
Uh, King David was a real, quote-unquote, real man when he wrote poetry and played the harp. Deborah was a real woman when she led Israel into war. Jesus wept over Jerusalem like a mother hen, Matthew 23, 31. And the woman of Proverbs 31 buys property, runs a business, has a strong back, and provides for her family. This means you don't have to be a stereotype to be a true man or woman. You can be a woman who uh, loves watching Monday Night Football while eating a porterhouse steak after bench pressing 300 pounds, and guess what? You're still a woman, right? You can be a guy who likes pastel colors, who does ballet and home decor, and who enjoys long conversations over tea, and guess what? You're still a guy. Like, historically, we just call this having a personality, right? Now, as the church, we should resist gender stereotypes and not say all men should be like this or all women should be like this. There's a lot of diversity in how we experience and express our identity as male or female. And finally, to kind of tie Seth's talk and my talk together, gender doesn't contradict biological sex. Uh, I'd suggest there's often a confusion of categories in our cultural moment today, that once you properly define sex and gender as categories, it helps to clear away some of the confusion. Uh, today, many assume that if I'm less masculine or feminine, a gender category, then I must not be fully male or female, a sex category. But this is a confusion of categories. There is a truth to the gender ideology of today. Uh, it would be naive to ignore this. Sometimes dangerous ideologies have a truth they put front and center, and the danger is in other lies they can smuggle in with it. But the truth is this, that when people say gender is a spectrum, that makes sense if we're talking about masculinity and femininity. As we've seen, this can vary in all sorts of ways for different people across societies and culture and, and all. Um, take me, for example. <clears throat> I'm more masculine or male-typical in some ways. I'm an abstract, conceptual thinker, for example. That's my world. Uh, but I'm less masculine in other ways. I'm nowhere near as buff as Seth, right? <laughs> Makes me sad. <laughs> and, <laughs> And I'm also more female-typical in some other areas. I'm extremely high in empathy compared to a lot of guys. Uh, there is a mix in, in some of these areas, and there's, um, so that we don't need to be threatened by, you know, that's, that's just a reality we can, we can see. Uh, there's a powerful lie, however, that often gets smuggled in with that package. And it's that how masculine or feminine you experience yourself to be or express yourself as changes whether you're truly male or female. Again, this is a category switch. Male and female have to do with our bodies, how our bodies are organized for sexual reproduction, uh, how our bodies are created in the image of God, as Seth talked about, as bodies that a visible uh, expression of, of God who is unseen in the world, a representation of God who is unseen in the world, and a number of secondary realities that flow from that in our bodies. Our bodies are sacred, a major danger of the gender ideology today is that it distances us from our bodies, separating our identity from who we are as daughters and sons of God. As the church, we should hold high the sacred significance of the body. We're not just persons who have bodies, we are bodies. When I touch your face, I touch you. We are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. Male and female are sacred parts of who we are that we need to honor. As I preached on this Sunday for those who are at Redemption Tempe, I believe Jesus brings, and we need to bring, three things. We need to bring compassion for the suffering, because Jesus brings compassion for the suffering. We need to bring compassion for those who suffer from gender dysphoria, 
and, and intersex conditions. Uh, there are, are some for whom this is an extremely painful experience, a psychological condition with gender dysphoria of extreme dissonance from the body. I believe we need to walk with compassion for those who suffer. Right? Secondly, I believe Jesus brings, and we also need to bring clarity for the confused. Right? For those who are confused today, we need to bring clarity that... Um, for the confused, people who are confused and thinking that how masculine or feminine you are determines whether you're truly male or female. Uh, many, of those, uh, many of those identifying as transgender today uh, do not have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, um, which is a small number, but it's often accompanied by a sense, it seems, especially amongst younger generations, it seems to often be accompanied by a sense that I feel like I don't quite fit the box of a typical male or female and begin to question. We can bring clarity for the confused in this morning, in, in this moment, and saying that you don't need to meet a stereotype in order to be truly a man or a woman. And finally, third, uh, we Jesus brings and we can bring confrontation for the revolutionary, right? Uh, not confrontation, not an arrogant culture war confrontation, but a humble yet bold affirmation amidst the ideology of our day that the body is sacred, that you can't separate your body from your identity, and that we wanna honor God with our bodies. Thank you.